Before we get started, I need to thank a new Patreon patron. Thank you, Jamie Pavlovsky, for becoming a patron of the original cast, and I hope you enjoy all the benefits you get therein, including your access to the original cast at the movies, our special Patreon-only podcast, which comes out every month, and this year is built on the theme of biopics and sequels. We're talking about... What are we talking about? This month, October, we're talking about Return to Oz, the sequel to The Wizard of Oz, which is nightmare fuel for a generation. We've talked about Evita. We've talked about Grease 2. We've talked about Staying Alive. We've talked about Shock Treatment. We've talked about Lady Sings the Blues. They're all there, including all previous 57 episodes of the original cast of the movies are yours at patreon.com slash originalcastpod. Go support Join, be like Jamie, and do the thing in this world that you know is right. Patreon.com slash OriginalCastPod. All right, here's the show. Whenever my world falls apart, I never lose hope or lose heart. Whatever the form of the storm that may brew, not with you to lean on, darlings, you. Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today is an author, performer, and theater historian. Her book, Gemignani, is available now from applause. It's Margaret Hall, everybody! Hello, hello! I feel like I should have worked Elvis into the intro somehow, but I'm sure it will come up. <laughs> uh, I'm sure one day we'll talk about All Shook Up. <laughs> there we go. You know what? Almost thought that would be what you chose. <laughs> Uh, based on your your love and knowledge of all things uh, Elvis Aaron Presley, um, but uh, but you didn't because you're not here to talk about all shook up. You're here to talk about the Broadway cast recording of Assassins. Someone tell the story. Someone sing the song. Every now and then the country goes a little wrong. Every now and then a madman's bound to come along Doesn't stop the story Story's pretty strong Doesn't change the song Otherwise known as the best cash recording ever put to celluloid Whoa! Mic drop from the top. Look at that. <laughs> Coming Going in hot. Bold from the jump. I love it. It's going to be an evening of hot takes, I feel like. <laughs> evening of hot takes. We're all there. Uh, so I have to ask, how did Assassins come into your life? Oh, okay. So I'm more comfortable telling this story now that Steve has passed away. Okay. So Assassins is a show that came into my life when I was about 14 years old. When my family got a desktop computer for the first time. Now, this was a big deal in my household. We didn't have cable. We were in a very digital household. I was growing up in the early 2000s, but I was being raised like it was the 1970s, basically. Nice. nice. And we got a desktop computer just in time for me to go into high school because the teachers were starting to push my parents on it. Mm-hmm. And I was the only one who was trained to kind of use this computer. My mom knew how to check her email. My brother was in like basic middle school typing courses, but I knew how to get on the internet, which opens up a whole world. Whole different thing. Yeah, yeah. Whole other thing. And one of those possibilities is a little website called LimeWire. Yes. I see now why you were waiting. (laughs) (laughs) 
I already adored musicals by that point. I consider musical theater to be my first language as much as English. My father literally cradled my head at like two and a half days old when they brought me home from the hospital to watch The Wizard of Oz. So he knew exactly what the ah, first was I'd ever seen. All right. Musical theater is how I see the world. And once I discovered this magical place called LimeWire, I typed Broadway into the search bar. Sure. And I just started downloading everything I could get my hands on because I needed to know everything. Because I had listened to every single cast recording in my small town's local library. And naturally, I started by downloading everything in the A section. Uh-huh. And that included the 2004 Broadway classified as a revival, but so far the only Broadway production of Assassins cast recording. And it changed my life. It changed my brain chemistry. And I am now well over a decade into digging deep into this particular cast recording. And it still surprises me with something new every single time I listen to it. Oh, well, that's interesting. We'll definitely have to talk about the new things you found this time then. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that is, okay. So yes, you you, you may have came, come about it possibly uh, unethically. but I have given so much money to this. I going to say, I think you've earned it. it <laughs> yes. You went in, you spent it, you did the thing. It's okay. It's all right. We, we you're, you're, on, on behalf of, I don't even know what record label it was on, but on behalf of Tommy Krasner, anyway, I will, I will, Tommy Krasner, you, you are absolved. Uh, yeah. So that's interesting. I, I came across this show at Sondheim at Carnegie Hall. Mm. It was the first time I ever heard anything from the show. Um, and it is a real, to me, example, the greatest example possibly of, oh, you can make a musical about anything. Because mm-hmm. it was a real moment for me as a kid of being like, oh, I didn't know that was possible. Like you could make a musical about history and then about that kind of history and about dark history and be intelligent and funny and odd. And we saw, I, that was in 92, I think. I saw that on TV. And then in 95, it was staged in Philadelphia by Charles Gilbert. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw that production. And that was sort of the first time I ever saw it and heard something just broke and went on from that. So but yeah. uh, so I encountered the, right, as you say, not really revival recording um, uh, in 2004 when it, when it came out. And so I will say from the jump, uh, this is not my favorite version of this show, but I think a lot of that has to do with how much I devoured the original 91 recording and how much that was and in the 91 recording is very well done. Mm. Assassins is very lucky that of all of the professional recordings it's had done, I cannot with my chest say that there's been a bad recording. Oh yeah, they're all good. Yeah, yeah including the most recent one. better than others, but none of them are like, Bad. Right. So what was it about this one that really stuck out to you? Was it because it was the first one you found or was it just the, the performances on it? What is your, what do you I mean, think? I'm sure that doesn't hurt. Sure. But to me, this recording is all about the mix, both in terms of how it's produced and how it's performed. Oh. The piece sits in such a beautifully buzzy place in the mask for every single one of the performers. And it's mixed in such a way that, listening with or without headphones, but it's especially noticeable if you're listening with headphones, 
you can tell exactly where they are in the room around you. And if you just mm. close your eyes and listen, the show is happening in your space. Mm. It's most obvious in songs like The Ballad of Booth, where Neil Patrick Harris is mixed on one side of your head and Michael Servers is mixed on the other. But the piece is so, it's a cast recording that envelops you mm. and it pulls you into the story in such a way. And it's so frontal in terms of placement without being grating, which can be really hard to do. And as much as I love the 1991 cast recording, one of the reasons why I rank the 2004 recording above it is because the mix is so forward and so present, it feels active. And it feels like it's being acted in that moment, even no matter how many times I've listened to this recording, I know that I'm listening to a recording that's more than a decade old, mm. but it feels like it's happening in the present. Whereas when I listen to the 91 recording, it feels like a recording. It's the way that I compared like the cast recordings for the original Ethel Merman Gypsy versus the Time Daily Gypsy. Mm. Of there's a different kind of energy to the recording. And I think the 2004 takes it even further than the Tyne Daily Gypsy recording did in terms of making it feel present, making it feel active and taking sort of the buzz and forming it into like a perfect triangle. So instead of, I think, drawing a distinction between an album that would be one of record, like a mm -hmm. recording of record and one that is trying to capture a sense of performance and vivacity is that sort of a way to the difference between it? archival and active mm -hmm. there we go and okay. i think it's one of the reasons why they recorded as many of the dialogue scenes as mm -hmm. they did on this recording is there it's almost kind of similar to what people talked about a lot five years ago with hamilton's recording of almost the entire show is on that disc with a couple of very specifically chosen excisions and Assassins 2004 is similar in that regard in that I was able to sit down with this at 14 having never seen the stage production of it they weren't exactly doing a ton of them in rural Ohio during the war <laughs> but I knew what this show was and before I had even seen it on stage I understood what was happening I understood the characters and I had mentally directed about 15 productions in my brain from the cast recording that, that's really true because it is a, I will say one of the things that shocked me when I saw it for the first time was the, how loose it was. I mean, not even loose with history, how just character, it's character based, you know, scene sequences mm -hmm. that are completely ahistorical and out of time and mixed with scenes that could be historical, you question mark, you know, the Shulgash Emma Golden scene, like who's to say, yeah. but certain scenes that just couldn't, you know, characters existing out of time and being in places together that they absolutely could never have been. Um, I was not prepared for that in the yeah. production I saw. You would, yeah, but this recording does a much better job of sort of setting the general tone of the entire, that there's going, leading up to the scene everybody's aware of with in the Texas Book Depository where everybody comes together in one Oh yeah, the 1963, one of the right. best sequences. We will be talking sort of naturally about Stephen Sondheim more during this podcast, just by the nature of how cast recordings work. Right. But John Weidman's work in Assassins mm. is... It is next level. He is one of the greatest librettists and book writers that we have had in American musical theater history. And I feel comfortable saying that with my chest. Mm. Is he's so talented and the work that he does in Assassins when you're talking about those ahistorical out of time moments, I'm not going to sort of 
regurgitate my thesis at you right now, but there's a reason that I'm able to write an entire thesis level research piece into this show and specifically into what Weidman did. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to make sure that that is noted is we're going to be talking a lot about Steve today. John Weidman is the magic in the sauce here. Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, I th- and I think if you're familiar with other, I mean, he's obviously done other work aside from the three historical musicals he wrote with Stephen mm-hmm. Sondheim, but he is most well known for Roadshow, Pacific Overtures and Assassins and the grand sense of things. And if you are familiar with the book of Pacific Overtures, which probably a lot of people are not, but you can watch the entire original Broadway production on YouTube, folks, if you Go want to. watch it. It's a masterpiece. It's great. But you get a sense of what he, his style that will eventually be, I think, peaked in Assassins, where he it, he does a lot of similar stuff, but it it's very theatrical. It's he's a little more historical in that in terms of accuracy, but it's still very theatrical. He's taking these historical events and theatricalizing them. And one of the things I think that doesn't ultimately work with Roadshow is he feels very restrained to sort of being a much more traditional book author mm-hmm. in that show. And I think you're absolutely right. This one is the sweet spot where he is just let off the leash. He can do whatever he wants, and he does. And that you see how that inspires the score. I mean, it would reverberate on back on, on top of each other very, very well, better than a lot of musicals I've seen. I find it sort of incredible. And how much do you know about the development of Assassins? I know. I, so here's the thing. If I was talking to anybody else, I would say a lot. But <laughs> <laughs> but as as a histo- as I am speaking with a, a known historian who is who who has a tremendous depth of knowledge, I will say you know more than I do, but I probably know more than the average person you speak to about it. Okay, and and to be fair, like there is stuff that is in my brain that frankly you should not know because it's from like private. <laughs> well, some, somebody things. should know, right? Somebody. Yeah, somebody, know. somebody needs to know it, but there's like right. some things that just like. Someone has to tell the story that, you know, like the dye makeup of how they dyed Boots coat. I don't think you really need the dye recipe. I just have have that in my brain. I've got that instead of like directions to a coffee shop. Sure. (laughs) Oh, you could find a coffee shop. Don't worry. It's much more important that we know the exact validity of synthetic to rayon. <laughs> but so yeah, getting back to the, to the yeah, development of the before show. Before yeah. I just go off that particular tangent, sure. John Weidman delivered this script to Sondheim pretty much entirely written. Mm-hmm. Is they both went to separate workspaces. Steve started cracking at what he thought a score would sound like. John wrote a play, frankly, mm-hmm. and then he brought the play to Steve, and the songs were placed over the play. And I think that's part of what makes it work so beautifully is because they're both creating in their full sort of essence without feeling the need to like, okay, I've got to stop because now it's time for something else. And I think this is not going to turn into a podcast about Roadshow. We can do that at a later date if you'd like. But one of the problems I think Roadshow had is that Weidman came into the project after it had already been percolating in Sondheim's mind for Mm -hmm. decades. And so there were like certain things that endear themselves to you after decades. And there were certain like historical details that couldn't be messed with because, oh, but my favorite song I've written for the show like 20 years ago has to do with this detail. So if we change that, then that's going to cause a problem down the line. Mm -hmm. And it's just one of those things where artists, when they're given space to create the art that they want to make, make their best art versus the art that 
they make when they're having to create it within boundaries of something. That's very telling because it is noticeably antithetical to the way that Sondheim usually works, that he usually mm -hmm. requires a book pretty much finished and then he starts putting songs into scenes. Mm -hmm. And I think it seems that the only, they agreed on tone and they agreed on the fact that they wouldn't worry about historical like characters living in their historical time so you have like you can have the gun song and another national anthem these things naturally just or um unworthy of your love mm. you know can sort of just exist and not worry about the fact that the rest of the book is like holding very firm to this this sort of genuine mm. uh situation I, I it is also i'm always struck especially with all the dialogue scenes on here Though they're not extensive track, the tracks aren't long that have the dialogue sequences. They remind me, having seen the show a couple of times, of, of the full scene. The big one being, of course, um, Mario Cantone's, you know, <sighs> delivery of the of the recordings. But also, I'm always struck when I hear those sorts of things of, about how, like, you know, this is a real man, Sam Beck, driving around, sending these rambling tape letters to people, but including Leonard Bernstein, who, of course, is a good friend of Stephen Sondheim. And it always strikes you as a little odd in that in It's that a little sequence. odd, but you know what's even odder? Steve did not know that Beck wrote to Bernstein oh. until he read the script from Weidman. Really? Yeah, that's something we had oh, talked about because funny. I was, I also, I had picked up on it too, and I'm like, I gotta know, did you hear the actual tapes? Right. That's nope. why. Wow. Weidman knew, like in his research, he figured mm -hmm. out that one had been sent to Bernstein. But what you're listening to is written entirely by Weidman. It's not yes. A yes. It is not a transcript of what actually and was sent. Yeah. It's just, it's fascinating to me that like one of these assassins came so close to Sondheim's orbit and he did not even know until decades after the fact. Yeah. I mean, well after. And mm -hmm. yep. Just, I, th I think good for him. I think luckily he didn't because that would have been incredibly depressing, I think. I honestly wonder if Lenny even knew. That's a good point because a lot of that stuff would have just gotten... Just get grabbed by never, someone. And yeah, never. And if somebody, one of his, somebody in his office listened to it and probably, well, we should probably send this to the Secret Service. Yeah, And that was probably the end of that, you know, like... Very possible. Yeah, it's kind of the way that goes. So what is... I have to imagine, because I also will say, I was surprised you didn't choose All Shook Up only because of what little I knew about you. You were an Elvis fan. But also, it doesn't surprise me that you were gravita you gravitated towards a show like this, as it is for you, as I'm sure it is, because it definitely is for me, a wonderful symbiosis of two delights of history and music theater mm -hmm. put together, even though it is very ahistorical. And I wonder how, when you first saw it, well, I guess probably you were prepared for it a little bit from the recording, but how does that as a historian like sit with you? This sort of the way the liberties this show takes with literal history in an effort to get at something, get at something greater. I've got a question for you. Sure. Before Assassins entered your world, mm -hmm. did you have any idea who Giuseppe Zangata was? No. Did you have any clue who Sarah Jane Moore was? No, I was also 11, but yeah, no, but, but no, yeah. I, and I don't think I would have to be, to be honest also. Yeah. I am a historian who has a very interesting view on the purpose of history in terms of human consciousness. Mm. I think there's a difference between facts and narrative. And I think there's a reason that human beings naturally gravitate toward being storytellers. Mm. It's one of the first human impulses is to tell stories and to tell narratives and to tell tales. 
basically. And at its core, I consider myself a part of a bardic tradition before I consider myself a part of a chronicler tradition. Mm-hmm. And a chronicler would be the more sort of strict, like data only facts, like Ken Burns style. Mm-hmm. And bardic tradition is when you use something from real life in order to communicate a truth to others. Mm-hmm. These are sort of your memoirs that touch you on an emotional level. These are your songs that are written eulogizing great events in history, things along those lines. That's a bardic tradition piece of art. And that is how I think of assassins. Like, did Giuseppe Zangara say exactly what he said in How I Saved Roosevelt? Uh, no, like, there's no direct quotes in that song whatsoever. However, you know his name now. Mm-hmm. When I say his name, something comes back to that. And that can be both a positive and a negative. Because one of the interesting things that Assassin's itself deals with head on is the nature of fame and its sort of insidious, creeping nature. Mm-hmm. And while Assassin's plays hard and loose with the facts, it's not claiming to be accurate from the jump, you're dropped into this, sorry, not to go Elvis on you, but you're kind of dropped in with the carnies. Mm-hmm. And you're dealing with a bunch of snowmen from the very, very beginning. That's actually a connection I had made before, but the proprietor <laughs> is kind of a worker figure. Mm-hmm. And there's just something fascinating with assassins about the way that it's not really about the actual historical figures, it's about the archetypes. And it's about what they mean to American pop culture. It's about what they mean to American consciousness. And it's about what they mean to the concept of the American dream. Because the American dream is not a factual thing either, but that doesn't mean it doesn't have sway over us. And Assassins, I think, is dealing with that much more than it is dealing with, okay, do we have the exact details of where people were positioned to be standing when a shot was fired? Mm -hmm. There's a difference between recreation and reclamation. And I think of Assassins as a reclamation. It also does the that wonderful thing of setting such a great tone with the opening where you know all these characters are going to exist in the same space together. Mm-hmm. But it also, it does, it knows which facts it can mess with and it knows which ones it can't. Mm-hmm. And it knows, you know, in a song like, I, I also wonder how much you agree with this, but I, I think you will, that one of the brilliant things about this show is that it opens and closes with the two assassinations you know the most about yeah it opens with booth where it all began because it has to Mm -hmm. and it closes with kennedy and even though again not historically linearly anything i mean you're not going to close with hinkley you know it's not a great it's not a great ending but it it shows the sort of the the wisdom of the like we're going to do booth and you know a lot about that one or at least you think you do and we're going to come at it from like the side angle but you're still going to get a lot of straight characterization from that and then we're going to go go all over the place and you may have heard of like you said you may know who Guteau is you may know who i think the audience probably would have known who sarah jane moore and squeaky from were from they definitely would have known squeaky from sarah they might have known another assassination happened but hers was way less publicized yes and much and and her name especially wasn't because there was no obviously no i mean with the manson connection squeaky from gets gets a lot of stuff and pretty much the only one i knew i will say i mean i was 11 but but again or 12 (laughs) but like i knew booth and i knew uh oswald and i knew john hinckley Mm -hmm. um 
and I had a vague sense that there had been other presidents who had been killed in office before that, yep. uh, just in my general walking around. But I had no idea. Like when I heard about this show, I was like, okay, so it's got four characters in it. That was sort of my general idea. And <laughs> then there's the there's all these other people in here. And it really like my one that was one of my first memories of it when I got the album was that idea, like you say, of it just opened a whole new sense of identity sort of for me as a, a kid in America being like, where do I live exactly? Like, what is this? Like, there's, this is, this is a lot. Did we know about, all this? did we know all of these things? And it really like still continues to shake me a little bit because I never feel the show exploits or gets in the sort of, who isn't this fun sort of thing of it. It always keeps it at that right, that right gross level. <laughs> One of the delicious things about this show is how human it is. Mm -hmm. And it's unafraid of acknowledging, frankly, how disgusting humanity just as a concept can be. Like mm -hmm. we're bags of meat that are electrified. Like when you get down to it, we're kind of gross. Mm -hmm. And Assassins deals with all of that grossness while also reminding you that these are people. Because especially one of the reasons what you're talking about with the pacing, I think, was done intentionally by Weidman is by starting with Booth, you're starting with a man who's become, frankly, a boogeyman in our culture. Mm -hmm. Is from like a very young age, children that are raised in the American education system, they know who Booth is and they know that he's the bad guy. Mm -hmm. And frankly, it doesn't tend to go much deeper than that. But what's fascinating about Booth, both in the show and as a real person, is how insidiously charming he was. Mm -hmm. And he really was a, he was a snake, is the way I always think of him, is I think of him like a cobra. Mm -hmm. And one of the master strokes of the Ballad of Booth, especially in the hands with someone as talented as Michael Cerberus, who, to make a pit stop here, I think is the most talented male actor we have working in the American musical theater right now, and he is mm. going to be remembered as our Bernhardt. He is incredible. Mm. He never turns out a poor performance, and trust me, I have seen many of them. And I won't linger on it too long, because I, my friends like to jokingly call me a Cerberus evangelist, but <laughs> is that one word or two? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> As an artist, he commits so deeply, and that works so well for Booth, and it's why he won the Tony. Mm -hmm. Because he's taking this character that you were predisposed before you walk into, like, if you know nothing else about assassins, you walk in, you're probably going to know who John Wilkes Booth is kind of wish I, as much as i love that they were at studio 54 i kind of wish they were at the booth theater just for that a little bit yeah don't yeah. you yeah right uh yeah 54 served their purposes fantastically but i just kind of <laughs> wish in an alternate world right. maybe a revival will happen there one day but one of the reasons why that number is positioned where it is as the second number of the show is because you come in hating that man or if you're not hating that man i've got questions but <laughs> right you're most likely coming in with this man being an ideological boogeyman for you. Every other character on stage at that point in the show, you probably don't recognize just off of visual. But the second he walks out there with that mustache yeah. and that coat, you know exactly who that is. Mm -hmm. And that's why that orchestral moment, and it's such a beautiful use of orchestration as storytelling by Michael Starobin, when everything hushes away except those low strings and that just sort of creeping, it's almost like a mist 
feeling from the orchestra. You know when Booth enters before he says a word on that cast recording. You know that someone has just entered the play. And the Ballad of Booth is so masterfully written by Steve to lull you into wanting to like him. Mm -hmm. He deconstructs the like everything you've been taught about John Wilkes Booth in a couple of minutes, which is not easy. And it takes a really, really talented performer. It takes a Victor Garber. It takes a Michael Cerberus. It takes a Stephen Pasquale to really make you even just slightly crack the door there to be like, oh, he's saying things and the way he's saying them, it kind of makes sense. And then the door slams open at the end with the big crescendo Mm -hmm. and the slur. And you realize, oh my God, wait, he was getting me. How the country is not what it was Where there's blood on the clover How the nation can never again Be the hope that it was How the bruises may never be healed How the wounds are forever How we gave up the field, but we still wouldn't yield. How the Union can never recover from that vulgar, high and mighty nigger lover. Never, 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 no, the country is It is also an excellent, you just made me realize, refutation of a very popular historical trope that I grew up with. Because uh, I kind of went up through grade school, elementary school, middle school, in the apex of the like, well, the Civil War wasn't about slavery. It was Ugh. about states' rights. Uh, and I so much so that I didn't even really realize how much that was the narrative of like, that was just the narrative of the early 90s like that somehow that that just happened it was like no no no. it was about you know like a lot of things like let's all be cool now and we're and living i grew up in wilmington delaware so i did not grow yeah. up in the south but i didn't grow you know but i like you know this was the the education i received but also not only explicit education but also like in my media you know like there's a simpsons joke about it there is a whole movie the whole movie gettysburg takes a lot of time in it's like four hour runtime to occasionally pull over to the side of the road and talk about how well you know there was a lot of things going on and it's awful and but what i love about what ballad of booth does is it like you say it takes that we, we start there. We roll in this like, no, no, no. Like I did what I did because I had these, it was about this and it was about that. And it was about this and it was about that. And then, but like you say, at the end, he goes exactly where this all really goes. And you as an audience member go, oh, right. Right. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yes. Never mind. And, and it's yeah. whiplash for a lot of audience members in yeah. the 2004 production. People walked out in droves after that song. Mm-hmm. It's like I'm very clear when I say you're either on board with the show or you're not yeah. after that song because you're either going to have to learn to sit in your discomfort while you're watching it and examine what is and isn't making you uncomfortable and why, mm-hmm. or you're not ready to do that and you're leaving. Yeah, because he's a very. I mean, he really leans into that highly romantic figure 
as the lyric says, got up in his rings and fancy silks. Like he is that, he is that in that, you know, that show. And he continues to be that. He's the force throughout the entire show, driving, occasionally like pushing people into those little corners. You know, he kind of coaxes, I mean, he directly tells Zangara what to do in a a, a scene that is very funny and is on the recording. Um, But then he also like in, in gun song, coaxes Shulgash forward. Like he spends a lot of time with this depressive guy being like, you know, in that he's the first one on who's like, no, like you hate guns. I know, but like, listen, it's cool. It takes a lot of men to make a gun. Hundreds, many men to make a gun. Men in the mines to dig the iron. Men in the mills to forge the steel. Men in machines to turn the barrel, mold the trigger, shape the wheel. It takes a lot of men to make a gun. One gun. And all you have to do is move your little finger. Move your little finger and... You can change the world. Why should you be blue and you've your little finger? Prove how just a little finger can. I change hate this guy. One of the interesting directorial choices that Joe Mantello made for this revival was that once your character committed their assassination or assassination attempt, you basically did not leave the stage. And Mm. so that means for pretty much the entirety of the show, other than something just broke, Michael Servers is on stage somewhere. Mm. And he's watching, even if he's not directly like interacting, he's like hiding behind a wooden beam, observing what's going on. Mm-hmm. He's present in the back and you can sort of see him in a flash of B-roll. It's, it's like they're haunting each other in this mm-hmm. really interesting way. And you can even get it vocally on this cast recording of the way that Cerberus utilizes his vocal instrument because he's using a very specific color. Mm-hmm. on this recording. This is very different than the Who's Tommy. This is very different than Fun Home. Mm-hmm. And he's utilizing this sort of high larynx, classical yet forward placement that calls to mind like warmth. But when he angles it the right way, it can be cloying too. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like chloroform. Mm-hmm. Have you ever smelled chloroform just like in a chemistry lab or anything? I don't think so, no. I, I had a weird chemistry teacher in high school. Chloroform <laughs> uh, is sweet. Uh-huh. Chloroform smells like you're making caramel, or at least that's how it smelled to me that day. Mm. But then you get too close, you breathe in a little bit too much of right, it. Right, you're and out. you're out, yeah. <laughs> and his voice is kind of doing that in this sort of hypnotizing, washing over you way. And he utilizes it throughout the show all the way up to November, 1963. Mm-hmm. Uh, even how he's speaking, the way he's resonating, the parts of his body that he's activating. He, it feels almost like a compulsion mm-hmm. of like, obviously Oswald is the one who's doing it, but as it is written, it's like he's being borderline hypnotized by sort of the legacy of it all. And that all stems from Booth within this show and within this country. 
Well, and also the sense of belonging. I mean, one of the great themes in the show is that is is outsiders and their mm-hmm. desire to belong and be a part of something, um, no matter whether that is disgusting or or not. Yeah. And one of the things, I mean, I like the 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 way that scene unfolds, though, also with how Booth. I mean, the scenes about Oswald doing what he's going to do, mm-hmm. but the stakes are all with Booth. He's oh, the one who's driving it. He's the one who gets furious mm-hmm. when it looks like they haven't, like when Oswald just sort of doesn't, dismisses all his arguments. He really loses his temper mm-hmm. in a in a excellent way, which is when you need your performer to be somebody who can be charming, but also I believe is capable of terrible things, you know, who is, all, you know, he's, He's Sweeney Todd, you know, as Michael Server as well. There's a reason that the most successful people to play Booth have been classically trained. Mm. Is because it takes the kind of like emotional flip that is the sort of thing you're taught if you're training to play like Iago and Othello. Mm-hmm. Of it's such an intense role and it can be deceptive. I, I have seen productions of assassins where the Booth hasn't necessarily understood that part of the assignment. Mm-hmm. And even if you can't put your finger on it in the moment, that is when I've seen a booth who has gone awry. It is that lack of understanding that he is almost on a Machiavellian level. Mm-hmm. He's operating a completely different game than every single other person in that space. Even the proprietor, even the balladeer. Booth is playing chess. Everyone else is playing backgammon. Mm. And it's this fascinating sort of, I, I won't belabor it much longer because <laughs> wax rhapsodic endlessly. But it's a, he's an incredibly well-written character and a really good way of using an audience's prior bias to your advantage as a storytelling device. Well, one thing, actually, you brought up the development a little bit because I, I hadn't looked at the, the cast for the uh, original reading mm-hmm. of this on the Wikipedia page in quite a while and was, I mean, obviously, you can get folks for a reading that would be really hard to all gather together for... Uh, an open-ended production or even a workshop at Playwrights Horizons. But I mean, you know, Victor Garber's there, great. But like Michael Jeter, Nathan mm-hmm. Lane, uh, Swoozy Kurtz, Christine Baranski, Paul McCrane. Are you kidding me? Paul McCrane as John Hinckley. Yes, all day and twice on Sundays. It yep. is it, like the the talent roster that obviously is coming out largely for the new Stephen Sondheim musical, but still no slouches any and it it really shows like man this this like that's a dream cast right there i don't know if it would work at a full production necessarily to have nathan lane's energy all over sam bick it might be i want him back i want him back i would i told him this i will tell it to the general public i will scream it at every producer i know give me an entertainment fund benefit performance where they bring back the majority of that original workshop cast because it it was built on them specifically with nathan bick did not have two monologues originally that's one of the only main alterations that happened to the original play of assassin okay Mm -hmm. is initially there was one monologue for bick and there was a monologue for a man who took a shot at teddy roosevelt Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, the name is escaping me right now, but this character was played by Christopher Durang, famed playwright. Yes. And Durang saw how good Nathan was and went to Weidman and said, you need to write me out and give my time to Bick because we're both doing a similar sort of comedic thing and you need to stick with this because this is the magic sauce and I have to see it in person. <laughs> I have to 
Well, it is also, I should be fair, it is 1989, Nathan Lane. This is not like, he's, yes. he's, he is yet to be, he's a known quantity in the New York theater scene, but he is yet yes. to be. We're before The Lion King, we're before yes. Birdcage. Or before, before Guys and Dolls, I mean, even. He's he's sure. like, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a stage star among those Jerry who know. Jerry Zach knows who he is at this point. That's why yes. Jerry's bringing him with him, but he's not become Nathan, capital N, Lane, no. capital L, italicized in bright lights. Yes, and he's not bringing with him that, the Nathan Lane thing that you sort of you have and the yeah. same with Christine Baranski right pre-Tony Award Christine Baranski I think she was one year off from that for yeah, rumors I think, I think 90 I can't remember if it was Assassins that was right before or Sunday in the Park with George that was right before but she was involved in both of those workshops right that's a oh man if you ever want to have a good time folks read the the original workshop reading of Sunday in the Park with George <laughs> and see some of the folks who were in that who later went oh on to be gosh. household names for television series and such Kelsey Grammer where's the tell all Kelsey Grammer there it is that's the big one uh it's yeah it's it's pretty it's pretty because <laughs> it, it, these people were working actors like it's what you did it's it's it was the it was the jam mm -hmm. speaking of which so actually this is a good question though how do we feel about Neil Patrick Harris in this recording, because we are dealing with 2004 Neil Patrick Harris, who mm -hmm. is, he's cresting back up. We're pre How I Met Your Mother. Post Doogie Howser. Post Doogie Howser. I believe right there. I think we're I mean, right I'm at, Patrick when is Harold and Kumar? Let's see. But he's, he's in that middle period where he's more yeah. known for being Neil Same Patrick here. Harris than he is Barney Stinson. Yes, he is. He's on, he is, it's still, He's still the guy from Doogie Howser at this yeah. point. He's done several, he's replaced a bunch of people on Broadway where he did like Cabaret, famously replaced Alan yeah, Cumming. He did Rent. He did Rent. So again, New York theater audiences are used to seeing him in stuff, but he's still, it's still funny that Doogie's in this thing. And this is, so yeah, Harold and Kumar, same year. This is real, like he's playing a heavy part in this we're also doing both the balladeer and lee harvey oswald at the same time which i greatly i think is actually the right decision and in this and and the way is the way it was originally done in the uh in the reading workshop and did they split that up because patrick cassidy couldn't play both parts was that the am i right about that i'm not at liberty to okay but okay. specifically like the, so the combination of the balladeer and lee harvey oswald is one that had been ideated but you're asking a lot of an audience when you do that because the balladeer is the one they start identifying with. Mm -hmm. The balladeer is the person that the audience feels like, okay, here's like the good guy that we have to hold on to. He's the everyman. And to then have him turn and turn into the other boogeyman ideologically after Booth causes a lot of reactions. And yeah. that is the exact express reason why I think Neil Patrick Harris was perfectly cast in this production. Oh, okay. You can bicker all you want with his voice. I think he sounds amazing. I think he suits the material and the key that they have for this production very well. But the fact that he's still Doogie Howser to the general public, the fact that he carries this veneer of innocence, this veneer of sort of You've, you in, you're endeared to him mm. in some capacity. And the same was also held by Cassidy, by the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that is so important to the character of the balladeer when you are combining it with Oswald in particular. Because in the same way that the audience is coming in not a fan of Booth, 
they need someone that they feel like they're rooting for. If they're already on edge after they're having to deal with the uncomfortability of the end of the Ballad of Booth, they need someone that they feel like they're holding on to. And they get that in the balladeer. They feel like, okay, here's the same person in the nut house, so to speak. Hmm. And to then have him turn and for him to even be hypnotized by it, to become Lee Harvey Oswald in the piece, it's like taking away that one last safety net. And I think that that particular sort of casting choice was incredibly smart. And also the fact that he looks like a stereotypical clean cut American boy Mm -hmm. is also something that I think is important because while the show does not directly comment on this in such a way, we sitting here in 2022 are fairly aware of the standard makeup of shooters in this country. And they look a whole lot more like Neil Patrick Harris than they don't. Right. And I think that's a smart way of sort of playing with that decades before we were even really talking about that in media. It's the same way of Hinckley was in reality, but also in this piece, sort of positioned as an incel icon before mm-hmm. we ever really used the word incel in the zeitgeist. Mm-hmm of it's speaking to a kind of core truth and i think that neil patrick harris's casting speaks to that truth as well and that his particular the way that he places his voice where it's not nasal but it's placed in the nasal resonator makes it so that the balladeer sounds like no one else on that cast recording and so you immediately have a sonic home base that you return to that can't be confused with anyone else i think that one of the things i I get struck by more and more and I don't know if this is intentional, but you, maybe you can elucidate me in that, is the platitudes that the balladeer espouses in another national anthem, mm. always they always struck me as weird. I will, I, I will t- cop to that. I, the, specifically, I'm thinking of the section of- I just heard on the news where the mailman won the lottery goes to show when you lose what you do is try again. You can be what you choose, from a mailman to a president. There are prizes all around you, if you're wise enough to see. The delivery boys on Wall Street and the usherettes a rock star. Right, it's never gonna happen, is it? Even as a kid, I will say, I thought it was weird that the connection was being made from being a mailman is losing. Mm-hmm. And I, that always struck me as odd. But as I get older, the part that strikes me even, not odder, it feels very American, but it, it feels very wrong is the next line, which, you know, you can be what you choose from a mailman to a president. And it really draws this sort of very American, you can be whatever you choose to be, which is simply not true. And I wonder, there's something interesting that happens to me where the, when the balladeer is spouting these platitudes of like, well, what you did didn't mean a nickel and it's not a big deal. And in America, we do this and that. And then he's chased off stage at the end of another national anthem as he is, and then morphs into this other nobody character. 
mm-hmm. who's kind of on the other side of that. Because Oswald is a, like, from a historical standpoint, a wild character. Like, oh, fascinating. Weird, wild guy. Like, did so many odd things. And but it's like gen- 12 lives. Yeah. I mean, it's just, is it, and it, it's one of the reasons why the conspiracy theories are allowed to thrive is because he is such a bizarre character uh, anyway that it gives you an excellent basis for that. You can really start somewhere with that. But what I, I really like the fact that the balladeer who is the sort of like big American rah-rah guy, after he has espoused all of this nonsense, like his, his, his arguments have fallen flat and he ends up where you would end up when all your arguments have fallen flat, which is on the sixth floor of the Texas Book Depository, you know, uh, and you're... You know, God knows what's going to happen next, trying to do something to assert your existence in the world. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. I like Neil Patrick Harris as the all-American boy shooter, which is what he he very, very much is. And I also hadn't thought of that before, but I do like the, the fact that we do need to draw a distinction between him and Hinckley, who mm-hmm. share a lot of sad loner similarities to them. Hink- Hinkley, though, obviously much more antisocial extreme than uh, than uh, Oswald was. Um, but it, it that isn't. Yeah, he's a <laughs> I, I, I will say that I think it his voice is very, very distinctive. You're, you're absolutely right. I don't have anything wrong. I, I never really had any complaints about his voice, especially on this recording. Yeah, uh, I, on- I have never had a problem with his voice. I know there's some people, but I truly think they're nitpicking. It, yeah. So attached to Cassidy. Well, and I also wonder how much that just becomes the Neil Patrick Harris of it all. I mean, he yeah. does, he is one of those people who, for a lot of pop culture fans, at some point he he seemed to overstay his welcome for people and whatever he did, people weren't happy about it. And I think when that happens, it's incredibly unfortunate. It's usually undeserved, but it makes me feel like, well, then like anytime I hear anybody complain about him, I'm like, well, you really like genuinely complaining about the performance or you just don't like him it's fine if you don't not everybody has to like everything but know what you're complaining about he's he doesn't yeah. say, you know he sounds good on this recording it's, it's the difference between emotionally motivated criticism and logic motivated criticism and also mm-hmm. artistic motivated criticism there's a lot of different ways to critique things but he's someone who for some reason and there are some justified reasons and some not mm-hmm. that he engenders an emotional reaction from people first yeah. And I think that's just, yeah, I think he's kind of always been that way and to a certain extent. I think people I think love him as Doogie. Child stars. Sure. Just, there's like seeing someone when they're so young, we get this weird semi-parasocial association with them that is just next to impossible to kick. Well, and ownership. There's, there's this weird sort of like possessiveness. I always feel that like with, with child actors or it's like whenever they do anything that isn't what you wanted, it's like there's the all the pearl clutching of like, oh, how could so-and-so, like how could Doogie do this? We'll just stick with that example. And <laughs> it's really ironic that he's, you know, became famous for playing a character like that who was a child prodigy and, you know, the dealing with the problems of being a child prodigy. And then, you know, he g- grows up to, I mean, he eclipsed it. I think we're pretty clear. You don't look at him and think Doogie anymore. No. Uh, but he didn't know I met your mother to do that. And now people look at yeah. him as Casey Barney. Right. And, you know, for better or worse, that's sort of, again, another incredibly distinctive character that he played for many years. So I guess pick your poison. <laughs> <laughs> sort of like, 
Listen, he's got the paychecks. That's he does. Good, he's got the paychecks. He's got the Tony he's Award. He's, he's all right. He'll be he'll be fine. He's doing Doctor Who. He's good. Yeah, I know. That's right. Mm-hmm. Forgot about that. He is doing Doctor Who. So you you have married the, the sort of like your love of music theater and your love of history into this, not only your NYU program, which people could read about on your website, but also into Geminiani. Talk to me about this book and this, oh. I mean, first of all, can I just say, I'm so grateful that this book exists, especially having someone like David Loud in my life, who like always says, is an amazing music director, talks about how Paul Geminiani and, and Harold Hastings before him mm-hmm. really like, or made him want to be a, a music director, but nobody really knows what a music director does. So <laughs> I'm really glad that there's now a book out there where you can read it and find really? out exactly <laughs> how great these people are. So how did this project unfold? So I always I always feel weird telling the story because what happened to me does not happen. Mm-hmm. It's a Cinderella situation in a, the weirdest kind of way. Do you know who Jennifer Ashley Tepper is? Yes. For those who don't know, uh, Jennifer Ashley Tepper is a, uh, a, a Broadway producer. She produced Be More Chill. She created Jonathan Larson Project. I know she worked on Tick, Tick, Boom, the movie. Uh, she's just a, a a producing force in New York. Okay, so Jen Tepper is a good friend of mine. I consider her something of a mentor. And actually, because we're talking about assassins, I'm going to take it back even further to where this actually starts. Oh. with Michael Cerberus. And I've never uh. told this story publicly. So in the end of 2019, I saw the archival recording of a play called In the Next Room by Sarah Rule, mm-hmm. which features Michael Service in the cast. And the play rewired my brain. I walked in one person, I left another person. And I was so emotionally moved by it that I had to talk to Michael about it. And so I ended up getting in contact with him. I was still an undergraduate at the time. And because he's the gracious human being that he is, he met with me and we spent several hours just talking about life. And he really changed the trajectory of my life through that conversation. Of I walked into that thinking I was gonna be a performer and I walked out knowing I wanted to spend every single breath I had in my body telling the stories of humans. Mm. And that that wasn't necessarily going to be through performance but it was going to be through people. It reaffirmed for me the value of humanity, Mm. frankly. And because of that, I met with Jen Tepper and talked about the fact that, oh, I think I wanna do this musical theater history thing. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm gonna try and figure it out. And then the pandemic happens because it's 2020 now. Right. And I'm finishing my performance degree at NYU doing Zoom ballet and other atrocious things. And I get a phone call from Jen telling me, hey, so Lonnie Price and Paul Gimignani just talked to me about how Paul needs to write a memoir. And I gave him your contact information. So I hope that was okay. And oh, wow. Was <laughs> and I initially thought that this was a thing like, oh, Paul needed to know what someone my age right, was right. like this. I thought that this was just like reader research. And that alone was fascinating. Right. I like sit on my floor to be like, they, they yes. know my name exists, what's going on? Uh, Paul sends me an email. I write a very long, very rambling email about every question I'd ever had about the man to him. And then he responds very plaintively with, okay, 
you got the job. I'll call you next week and we'll get started. Oh gosh. <laughs> yeah. Paul, Paul does this to, he's done this hundreds of times in his career. Of I like to say that he has a superpower and that's that he knows who someone is supposed to be before they even know it. Mm-hmm. He's given so many people in this industry their first shot. He believes you and takes you at your word when you say you can do something. Until you prove you can't, he believes mm-hmm. you. Even if you've never done it before, there's always got to be a first. Mm-hmm. And he did that with me. And Jim and Yanni, while it is technically classified as a biography, I think of it as a memoir and Paul thinks of it as a memoir. Because while I am the one who wrote it, I am writing down his perspective. And that was my purpose. Mm. Is My purpose was to capture what he saw, how he saw it, in a way that, God forbid, when a time comes where he's not here, it's like you're getting it straight from his mouth. Mm. Only it's through my lens to make it slightly less tangenty. Sure. And it is specifically geared for someone who knows that they want to be in music. Maybe they even know they want to be in the theater, but they don't know where there's a place for them. I always pictured like a 12-year-old in Wisconsin was like the reader I was writing toward. And we did it insanely fast because the deadline just got thrown at us. Is I wrote that book in six months. Wow. Yeah, which is not happy. Wow. You had it, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I am in. Wow. <laughs> okay. I basically. It I, does I, not read like that at all. <laughs> That's incredible. Thank you. Good That's to hear. Amazing. Um, yeah. just, I became a monk, basically. I became a monk yeah, to the church to. of Gimignani. Of I would wake up, the first thing I would do would be call Paul until we were too exhausted to talk anymore. And then I'd do some coffee and I would write until I couldn't see straight. And then I'd mm. sleep and repeat. And we did that for six months and it became my life. And it really was this incredible period of growth. And Jim and Yanni is just barely over six months old now. I know. Incredible. And I'm so proud of my baby, but it's wild to think that it's now been in the world longer than it initially took to gestate. Mm-hmm. And yet I still go back to it and I'm so proud of it. And when I think about who I was before I got that phone call from Jen, she's like a different person, yet I also mm-hmm. know her so intimately. I had to grow up so fast. Mm-hmm. That's what for listeners, you can't see my face. I'm 24, about to be 25. And while I have always been sort of quote unquote called old for my age, so to speak, this really forced me in a good way to grow up at a speed where I know who I am now in a way that I'm so grateful for. And again, it's Paul's superpower. He knew who I was supposed to be and he helped me find it when it could have taken me a decade to find sure. it about him. And he did it in such a way that like, it's just so gentle. And he's such an incredible person. And I highly recommend the book, not just because I wrote it, but because Paul is a man that every single person who has any interest in the American theater should know because yes. he's the best of us. He is someone who leads with compassion and loyalty first. And that is something that we need more of in this industry and we need more of in this world. And he's incredibly good at what he does. But beyond that, he is an incredibly good person. He is like, there's a lot of baggage attached to the phrase good man, but Paul is a good man. Hmm. And we need that more than ever as something to turn to for guidance. And it's the reason why we have a section in the book called Advice for Artists, Mm -hmm. where we plainly lay out the equivalent of Paul's Ten Commandments. And I live by them now. 
and my life is so much better for them. Life is much easier if you go with kindness and passion than anything else. That's amazing. I mean, it is, it's a great book. As I say, it, 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 it feels so thorough and so lived in. And so, I mean, as someone who's a tremendous interest in Sondheim and New Paul's name, it is, it's still full of wonder and amazement for me. Um, it's necessary to any Sondheim completists out there. And I know you're out there. So don't mm -hmm. pretend like you're not, you have to run. So I have to ask you before you leave though, what is your favorite song in Assassins? Oh, that's evil. Um, it changes every day. Today, I'm going to say the Ballad of Cholgosh, specifically because you asked at the beginning about something new that I discovered. It's mm -hmm. because I heard a new breath from Neil Patrick Harris that I'd never heard before. And it tells me so much about how they recorded it. Listen through it again and listen to the way that he just breathes out his cutoffs. It's beautiful. It's fascinating. It's uh, so alive. Oh my gosh. Excellent. Margaret, thank you so much for this wonderful, brisk, but wonderful conversation <laughs> oh, about the 2004 recording. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anytime. Yes. You ever want me? I'm here. Chol gosh, working man, born in the middle of Michigan. Woke with a thought and away he ran to the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo. In Buffalo. Saw all of a sudden how things were run. Said time's a waste and it's 1901. Some men have everything and some have none. So rise and shine. In the USA, you can work your way to the head of the line. Sing the line, ladies and gentlemen. Line forms here to meet the President of the United States. Sing the line to shake hands with President William McKinley. Oh gosh, quiet man Worked out a quiet and simple plan Stroll of a morning all spick and span To the temple of music by the Tower of Light At the Pan American Exposition In Buffalo In Buffalo McKinley there in the sun. The original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn. Please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. It's the easiest way to help the podcast grow. Go to bit.ly slash originalcaststore for t-shirts, tote bags, magnets, and more. If you like movie musicals, then you have to check out patreon.com slash originalcastpod to learn about our bonus podcast, The Original Cast at the Movies. You can follow The Original Cast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at originalcastpod. Special thanks to our social media manager, Bethany Zalecki. Hey, Bethany. My thanks to Margaret Hall for coming and talking to me. I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal. Chol gosh, angry man, said I will do what a poor man can. Yes, and there's nowhere more fitting than in the temple of music by the tower of light between the fountain of abundance and the court of lilies at the great Pan-American Exposition in Buffalo, in Buffalo. Wrapped him a handkerchief around his gun, said nothing wrong about what I'd done. Some men have everything and some have none, that's by design. The idea wasn't mine alone, but mine, and that's the sign. In the USA, you can have your say, you can set your goals and seize the day. You've been given the freedom to work your way to the head of the line. To the head of the line.